And as you're doing that, go ahead and do one more thing. Grab your Bible if you have one or access uh, on your phone or whatever device you're using. Find your way to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be in Luke 18 verses 9 through 14 this morning. So if you were here last week, you heard Caleb Kottenbach talk about messy grace and how God wants us to love people who are different and messy and don't always fit into the nice, neat boxes that we have for our lives. And so if you were, were not here, uh, you missed a great Sunday. I encourage you to go online and, and to watch uh, the, the message. It was really good. Uh, this morning, we are jumping right back into our series that we've been going through in the fall. Uh, it's on idols, and it's called Undivided, Dealing with the Things that Keep Us from God. And, and we've talked about uh, that many of us don't know sometimes the very things that we think are wonderful, great things in our life become ultimate things and then take the place of God. And when that happens, we don't even realize that something has kind of removed God from the, the primary place in our life and has taken over. And that's what the Bible calls what we call an idol. And so we've been going through that. And so this morning um, is kind of, a, this is a mini series within the broader series. We're going to, this week and next week, we're going to talk about an idol that most of us don't qualify as an idol. And it's the idol of religion. Um, you think, well, wait a second, isn't religion supposed to be something that's positive or good as long as it's not in a religious way like religious leaders, things like that? But what happens is that we take this thing that God gave us, which is wanting to relate to human beings in a personal relationship through Jesus' death and resurrection that changes everything, and we want to create a system of belief. We want to create kind of do's and don'ts and kind of frame it in something that's comfortable and neat and tidy for us, and then we give it a label, and in our case, we give it the label Christianity, which, by the way, Jesus never came to start Christianity. He didn't even come to start a church. He came to extend his, just to, to bring his kingdom to bear on this planet so that ultimately we would have a personal relationship with him so we could be reconnected with God. But we take this and we, we create this thing called Christianity, and Christianity can become something, believe it or not, that takes the place of God in our life. You're like, wait a second. I've, I've like prided myself on being a Christian my whole life. Well, just a minute. Jesus never called you to be a Christian. Jesus called you to follow him. And so this week and next week, we're going to talk about really two sides of this coin of religion that we have to be aware of that becomes idols in our life. And this week, uh, you may not think this, but this is true for, for most of us, probably all of us at one time or another in our life. And that is this week we're dealing with the idol of, believe it or not, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is somehow navigating and managing our life in such a way that we feel like we're good enough for God. And you think, well, that's kind of strange. But we, what you do and I don't realize is so many times, if you said yes to Jesus, you come to faith in him and you're following him, and then something inside of you says to you, you're not quite good enough. You have to do more. You have to be better. You have to make sure that you're good with God and good with other people and good with yourself. So you have this internal motivation. In fact, it really comes in kind of two ways. In fact, if you're like me, I know this is the internal dialogue that kind of goes on when it comes to self-righteousness. And that is that one side, inside, internally, what's motivating you to seek after, to try to be righteous in your own ability? The one side is motivated, motivated by shame. And that is that inside, this is the internal dialogue that we have. Maybe you're like me. And that is, okay, I'm not feeling great about myself, but I know if I do something to do good by God and good by other people, then somehow I'll feel good inside of myself and it'll somehow quiet the voice of shame in my life. And at least for a moment, I'll have peace. So I better do something good so it motivates me. Anybody willing to admit that maybe you've had that internal dialogue before? I guess all the shame people here first service, right? All of us have. You just don't know it's called shame. And so you're inside, there's this turmoil. And then there's the other side of the coin, which is pride which says inside you're thinking to yourself, I'm just a little bit better than everybody else. 
or just a little bit better than so-and-so or some, somebody that you point out. And so there's this sense of pride, and you think in your, of yourself that you're good enough, so you do things to justify how good you really are. And so inside, you're motivated by either shame or by pride, but way the way it comes out is, whether you know it or not, what you're saying to God is that I'm going to try to figure out this thing called right living and righteousness all on my own, and then someday I'll stand before you and I'll say, see, I did it. And he'll say, no, you couldn't, no matter how hard you try. And I'm convinced today, one of the things that God wants us to be freed from is self-righteousness. Now, when we think of self-righteousness, we always think, oh, yeah, that self-righteous person that's always making me feel bad about myself, right? Self-righteousness is something that all of us struggle with. It's either motivated by shame or by pride in our lives. So in, in, in the story that we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 18, there are two characters, and the two primary characters in this really represent our struggle with self-righteousness. One side, it's a Pharisee who's based his, his life in pride. The other side is a tax collector who lives in constant shame, but also lives in humility, which we'll talk about that in a moment. And so I want us to go ahead and jump into that. So if you have your Bibles, let me read starting in verse 9. Read to verse 14 of Luke 18. So it says this, verse 9. It says, He also told this parable to some who, here it is, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of uh, a tithe of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I'm convinced there are tax collectors and there are Pharisees here today. And some of us were both, depending on the day, depending on the activity, depending on how we feel. So what I want to look at, starting with looking at the tax collector, is that there's things that cause us to be obsessed with self-righteousness. It's what drives the self-righteous side of us to do things in our life. And it's what this Pharisee is dealing with as he stands in this very prominent place to pray in the temple. So look at verse 11. The first thing that that drives our self-righteousness that we're obsessed with is that we're obsessed with appearance. It says the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed. So we know from what Jesus has said in other writings that Pharisees were known for their public, loud displays in prayer. They made sure that they would position themselves in a prominent place in the temple or on a street corner somewhere that when they did their religious activity of praying, everyone would look at them and go what? Oh my goodness, you're amazing. You're so righteous. You're so spiritual. You're so, I wish I could pray that way. So they would feel some sense of pride in their own ability to just do what? Talk to God. But they had to do it in such a way. In fact, when it says he stood by himself, most likely he stood in a very prominent position where everybody in the temple could see him doing what he was doing. He wasn't hiding in a corner. He was standing in a very public place to make this statement that I am now praying to God. And I'm sure he probably thus saith the Lord, or I pray to God the Father. And use all these big words, what, to make it feel like he's so spiritual. Can you imagine like, oh, wow, like I I really want to pray like that guy. So what was he all about? He was about what people thought of him. Now, I know nobody in this room is ever worried about what somebody else thinks of them. All of us have. All of us, every single day of our life, we think about what other people think of us, and we're driven what? To do things that make people become impressed with us. Here's the challenge of the way we live our lives. We have become masters at living a highly edited version of the life that God has for us. 
So what we do is we take the version of ourselves and we try to hide all the places that we don't want people to see stuff. So we edit our lives. And what we present to people is only the good stuff, the stuff that people will pat us on the backs for, the people that will think highly of us. And all the bad stuff we leave in the closet hoping no one will ever open the door. So I'm not saying social media is a horrible thing, but I'll tell you, social media has fueled this whole idea of making sure that we live a very highly edited version of ourselves. So if you've spent any time on Facebook lately, one of the things that comes along with Facebook, whether you want it to or not, for most people, is a thing called shame. Because when you start scrolling through your feed and you're looking at what everybody else is doing, the first thing that comes to your mind is, I'm a loser. I mean, look at this picture. They were hanging out with a celebrity. How do I even match up to that? They were going down to Skid Row. They were feeding the poor. What did I do? I sat around and watched football on Saturday. I'm a loser. Anybody ever admit that you've done that when you looked at Facebook? If you're on Facebook, would you raise your hand? Or you're lying, because I know we all do. We all do. And what does Facebook represent? I'm, I'm not saying Facebook is of the devil, okay? I'm just saying, what does it represent? Facebook represents a highly edited version of yourself. When was the last time somebody posted a picture of their most grievous sin in life on Facebook? (laughs) They didn't post it. Somebody else might have posted it, but they didn't post it. We don't do that. Why? Because we don't want people to know that. Because we're consumed with what? Appearance. We want to look a certain way. Why? Because if we look a certain way, then our life will be right and we'll be considered good and righteous and good enough and just a little bit better than everybody else around us. And then for at least a moment, what will we feel? I'll feel good about myself until the next moment comes where you and I feel shame or guilt about our lives. And then the cycle starts all over again. Second reality of what drives this self-righteousness in our life and we're obsessed with is comparison. If you go on in verse 11, he says this, the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extorters, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. So remember, what are Pharisees? Pharisees are those who are the experts and they understand the way to to live out the law, the way to, to do it in such a way that everybody looks at them and says, wow, you understand the law, you are righteous. That was what their life was about. So what, is, what does a Pharisee do to make himself feel well? Well, he looks around and he finds somebody who's less than him. And in his self-righteous attitude, he thanks God that he's not like this poor tax collector. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but any, you ever looked around and thought, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like that person. We do. We look around and we do that. Why? Because it makes, for a moment, we feel like, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are. So we start comparing each, with ourselves with somebody else. And I, I'm convinced that we will always find somebody who's worse than we are. We'll always, we'll always find somebody who's just a little bit more sinful or struggling a little bit more to make ourselves feel good. The problem is, is that God's standard for righteousness is not being better than somebody else. God's standard for righteousness is what? Perfection. So when we start comparing ourselves to everybody else, we're in a losing battle. Because ultimately, we might win the battle of comparison with somebody else, but we're going to lose the battle of comparison with God's standard, which is perfection. And his perfection comes through Jesus, his death and his resurrection, which provides for us, we'll talk about it in a little bit, righteousness, true righteousness, not self-righteousness. But just think about in your life how you have compared to somebody else. I'm convinced in my own life, I know I do this, and I'm just going to confess, I grade my sin on the curve. Anybody do that same thing? which means I'm not the worst, but I'm not the best, but I'm definitely not the worst, right? We always find, you know, like like somebody's, if I'm like, it's like that old, you know, the old story, it's like you don't have to outrun a bear, you just have to outrun the slowest guy behind you because he'll get eaten by the bear. You know, when it comes to righteousness, there is no guy behind you. You are the guy behind you. You're going to get eaten by the bear. 
because the standard is so high. But how many times do we live in comparison? And when we live in comparison, what are we doing? We're doing the very thing that Jesus told us not to do, which is what? We're judging other people. We're judging their value based on their activity compared to our activity. If we're just a little bit better, then at least for a moment we feel good enough. And tell what happens. You find somebody else who's more righteous than you. And you will. Because if you're comparing yourself to other people, you're going to bump into somebody and go, oh, I can't win that comparison. And then what's going to happen? Then you're going to feel shame or you're going to try to ratchet it up to pride and try to compensate for what's going on inside of you. And you can never win that battle. And then there's a third Third obsession with self-righteousness, and that is we are obsessed because we want, to, we want validation. We want some kind of approval or some kind of stamp of acceptance on our life. So the, the Pharisee says, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. So the law required that there was a fast on the Day of Atonement. Beyond that, there wasn't any mandate. This is what you have to do. But so what is he saying? He's saying, listen, I, I fast twice a week. I do more than the law requires. And then Pharisees had very strict rules about all the things that even some of their own crops that they would tithe off of. So it was a very, very kind of legalistic kind of approach to the law in that I do enough, but I do over and above. Why? Because I want that extra stamp of approval on my life. I want to be validated. Why? Because if I'm validated, then I feel good about myself for a moment. And then I feel somehow that I'm acceptable to God. I'm acceptable to other people. I'm acceptable to myself. Because I know if you're like me, you, you, you and I keep ledger, a ledger of the sins in our life. And then we also keep a ledger of the good things in our life. Because we have good memories, whether you know it or not. And I think sometimes when we blow it, we start to make a ledger of the times and guilt and shame comes with those memories. And then the other side, it's like, well, maybe if we can compensate, if I do some really good stuff, I can cancel out the bad and maybe the good will outweigh the bad. And so somehow then I can feel like I'm justified before God. Anybody ever want to admit that you, when you felt bad about yourself, you were motivated to do something good, but for the wrong motives? I know I have. I mean, there's been times in my life when I've gone out and done something that on the outside looks totally righteous, looks totally spiritual, but I'm doing it for, for the completely wrong reason. And what I'm doing it for is earlier, I'm doing it what I'm doing for the pat on the back. I'm doing it for validation. Remember what Jesus said? If you, he listed a number of things, and one of the things that if, even in giving, if, you, if your left hand knows what your right hand's doing, and then someone says, hey, wow, you're super generous, and they pat you on the back, the reward you're looking for, you just got it, because you won't get it in eternity. Because you were looking for the approval of people around you. You didn't care about what God thought. You only thought about what people around you thought. I am guilty of that. I know so many times it's like, man, the motivation's wrong. Because my motivation shouldn't be to get the pat on the back from somebody else. The motivation should be out of love and relationship with Jesus, I live a righteous life. That's different than looking for the pat on the back. But so many times we look for that validation. So this religious leader is looking for that. But as the story goes on, then we start talking about the tax collector. And the tax collector, again, knowing these two characters are the exact opposite of each other, the tax collector is the most hated, one of the most hated people in Jewish culture because he is a traitor. He has been authorized by the Roman government to collect taxes, and the Roman government sets the tax, and then they say, anything you want to charge above that, it's on you. So the tax collector had unlimited authority to pretty much say, okay, your tax is this, and he could make up whatever he wanted to, and he could make all the money off the top. And so all Jewish people knew that tax collectors were cheats, and they were betrayers of their own people. So they were hated. So I'm sure the Pharisee felt really good when the tax collector walks in the back of the temple and goes, ooh, I got one. I got somebody that I'm better than. But listen as the story goes on, because looking at the tax collector, Jesus actually highlights there's actually a cure for for self-righteousness. There's an answer that Jesus gives through this story talking about the tax collector. So go ahead, look at verse 13. 
the first part. Here's the first step or first understanding of the cure for self-righteousness. It means that you and I have to embrace humility. So Jesus says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. So here's the opposite. What is the, what is the religious leader doing? He's standing in a prominent place. The tax collector is doing what? He's hiding. He's kind of back out of the way. He doesn't want anybody to see him. Why? Because he, he's not taking pride in himself. He's actually walking in humility. He's taking a step back from what everybody else sees. He's not wanting to display his righteousness because he's actually having a very honest moment with God. He's being completely honest about his brokenness in his life. That's true humility. And this is important because when you and I choose to live in humility, this is what's wonderful. Everything that comes in our life, everything that comes from God, comes as a gift. And a gift is not something that you get because you deserve. A gift is something that you get because somebody loves you and chooses to give it to you. But then the opposite is true. What happens is when you and I don't live in humility, you know what we do? We assume that we have the right to receive the gifts that we're going to get and they no longer become gifts. We have this thing called what? Entitlement. I deserve. Why? Because I am at least righteous more than this person or righteous enough in my own mind that God now, I deserve these things. And so anything that would come as a gift now becomes this assumption that it belongs to me. See, humility is the opposite. It says everything. Nothing is assumed with humility. I don't assume God's grace. I don't assume anything in life. Everything that I get comes from God. It's a blessing. It's a gift. And therefore, I can enjoy it. But if not, let's put it this way. Anybody ever been about 5, 30, 6 o'clock in the grocery store? You're running home on the way, for, on the way from work. Uh, away from, excuse me, on the way home from work. You're just stopping by to grab a couple things. And the lines are all long. Anybody been in that scenario? And then you're standing there, and then one of the checker comes along and says, hey, I'll help the next customer on aisle three. And then it happens. Everybody thinks they're the next customer, right? Anybody been in that scenario? And everybody tries to jump in line, and then there's this, like, bitterness that comes over everybody. I was next in line. No one says anything, but you can feel the tension, right? Because in that moment, everybody's assuming something is true about themselves. I am the next customer in line. Anybody ever calculated, you know, how many people are in line? Like, yeah, no, I think I'm the one, right? They're going to be there, and they're going to be there. And then when someone gets out of line, everybody gets upset. Why? Because we're assuming we're the next one in line. But there's those one moments, and I think I've, I've seen it happen like two, maybe three times in my life, especially at that time of day. Someone told me in between services, I'm really humble when I'm not in a hurry. Isn't that true? Right? You're like, oh, I have all the time in the world. Go right ahead. But when I'm in a hurry, forget about it. Pride comes in, right? So when one of those few moments when you're standing, and, and then the... the you know, aisle three is open, and then everybody freezes. And they all, like, look at each other. No, I, I think you were in front of me. No, no, I think you go first. No, no, you're holding more stuff than I am. And then there was this, almost this argument on who's going to go first. And then finally, somebody gets appointed. No, you are the one. And then that person moves into line. Now, let me ask you a question. When you end up being that person, doesn't it feel a whole lot better than if you were the first person to step up and say, oh, no, I'm first, I'm the next person in line. Why? Because you were just given a gift by a group of people who didn't even know you, but they saw your humility, and they what? They rewarded your humility. See, that's the difference. When we're, what will cure us from self-righteousness is when we don't assume anything. God doesn't owe us anything. Nobody owes us anything. Then what comes in our life comes as what? A gift. And you don't expect a gift. A gift comes. That's why it's called what? Grace which is getting stuff that we don't deserve, mercy, being held back from what we really deserve, those come as what? A gift from God. And when we live in that, then we realize I don't have, because if I'm not self-righteous, then I don't think anybody owes me anything, let alone God doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't owe me grace, mercy, his death on the cross, but when he gives me that, 
it's a gift that I can enjoy because I didn't have to earn it. It came as a gift. Second reality, the cure for self-righteousness also comes in the form of sorrow. So it says in the next phrase in verse 13, but he beat his breast. He was beating his chest. He was beating on his heart. That's what the tax collector was doing. And that was a sign in that culture of sorrow and brokenness over something in your life. And so he was broken over his own condition. Can you imagine? He walks into the temple and everybody turns and looks at him because they know he's a tax collector. And in their mind, I'm thinking, how dare you walk into the house of God? He's already feeling the sting of other people, and so he feels that, and he starts to beat his chest. Why? Because he knows what he's done. In fact, if you just think about this for a moment, he's probably looking around the temple, and he knows everybody's name, and he knows what their tax bracket is, because he knows how he's ripped them off. And he comes in, and he's come face to face with his brokenness. He sees it in all the people around him, and so there's this sorrow that comes over him. And what is he doing in that moment? He's getting a good look at his own life. Because his life's being paraded in front of him of all the people that he's lied and cheated to. Cheated, and he's now rich on their, at their expense and now it's all standing in front of him. It's right there. So he's beating his heart in front of God and he's sorrowful for what he's done. Why? Because he sees the full weight of his sin. Now we don't like to do that. I don't want to know the bad stuff. I know I'm bad, but I don't want to know. God, just take care of it all. Just forgive me and then we'll call it good, right? Anybody like me? Don't bring up the bad stuff. No, that's the opposite of humility. That's the opposite. That's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a denial of the fact that you and I have sinned. But if we're really willing to face the fact and have sorrow over the fact that we have sinned and we have violated what God purposed for our life, we have missed the mark of what God purposed for our lives, then what ends up happening is that we begin to understand that we can experience righteousness, not self-righteousness. The last thing that you want to want to do is when we sin, we don't want to be reminded of our sin. But sometimes you and I have to look in the mirror. Remember what James talked about? You know, when you come to the scriptures and then you read them and you walk away and you forget them, it's like someone who goes to a mirror and then forgets what they've seen. Now, none of us ever forget what we've seen. Sadly, we do. That's why you have to keep coming back to the mirror and look into it. And see, the reason why is because I think sometimes when you and I violate something in our life, we know it's wrong. Most of us are pretty, pretty sure it's wrong, but we don't know how wrong it is until we see the weight of it in our life. So I've, anybody ever been injured physically and you didn't know how bad it was until you walked in front of a mirror and someone told you it was bad? A couple times in my life, I remember I I literally did a header over my handlebars on the way to school one day because my friend cut me off and my, I face planted into the street and I knew it was bad, but I didn't know how bad it was. I knew there was blood involved and it wasn't a good thing and my bike was tweaked. So I limped home and I got, and I I was, I think I was in middle school. I was tough. I didn't have to cry. And then I walked into the bathroom and I I was just walking to the bathroom. My mom goes, ooh, it's bad. I'm like, what do you mean bad? She goes, oh, it's bad. I'm like, no, it's not that bad. She goes, oh, it's bad. So we get in the bathroom and as soon as I saw the, you know, the, the rash, the road rash all down my face, I'm like, I just started crying. I lost it. I'm like, I'm no tough, not a tough guy anymore. Or when I got my chin uh, cut on playing basketball, some guy landed on top of me and my chin hit the gym floor and split open. And I didn't feel a thing. And I got up and I went to the free throw line and everyone was saying, it's bad, it's bad. I'm like, no, it's not bad until I looked down and my entire jersey's covered in blood. And then I got to the sideline. A couple of the moms, you know, looked like, oh, it's bad. I'm like, no, it's not that bad. They're like, I, I said, I don't feel anything. They're like, oh, it's bad. And then I went into the locker room and the coaches all look in the mirror. I looked up and it's just, I can almost see like my chin bone, you know. And I'm like, okay, that's bad. And then we were in the car on the way to the ER for stitches. Sometimes you and I need the mirror. And this tax collector is getting a full view of the brokenness of his life and what he's done to people as they walk by him. And in doing so, he now has sorrow over what he's done. 
because he realizes he has nothing. He has no ounce of righteousness to offer God. He has nothing. He's broken and he's being exposed in this place. That's why he's beating his chest and he understands that. And there has to be those moments. That's what Jesus said, blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over what? Because they had a bad day at work? No, who mourn over the sin and brokenness in their life. Why would you be happy if you mourn? Because for the first time you come to grips with your brokenness and realize there's an answer beyond your sin. And it comes through the righteousness that Jesus brings. And then there's a third reality of the cure for self-righteousness, and that is dependence. This is the opposite of pride. So then the tax sector goes on and he says, God, be merciful to me. He's throwing himself on the mercy of God. He's saying, listen, I don't have anything of my own. I'm completely dependent on you, which is the opposite of self-righteousness. Here's the way self-righteousness works its way out in our life. Sometimes, whether you know it or not, you and I bargain with God. And here's how we bargain. We're like, okay, I know I'm a sinner, and I know that you saved me, and you died on the cross, but I'm going to give you a little help. You take the heavy load. You take 80%, but I'll work on the 20. And we think we have something good to offer God. And God goes, no, your 20 doesn't even come close to my 80. And so we, we kind of work out a deal like, okay, God, you, you're, you're, I'm because this is one thing we don't want to say, and you're not supposed to say this. By nature, none of us are good. I know that's, oh, don't say that. People are going to have low self-esteem. Well, we got worse problems than low self-esteem. But here's the reality. None of us are good. Oh, that person's really good. Uh, they're good by the grace of God and what Jesus is doing in their life. Here's the crazy thing. What makes us so valuable is that God loves bad people. God loves people that aren't good. That's what brings us great value. That the God of the universe would take me broken, sinful, a loser, and say, I love you. And which demonstrates to us, I can do nothing to make myself right with God. Only through Jesus can I experience that. I am totally dependent on him. Think about what your life would look like if you were totally dependent on him. You know what it would mean? It means that you'd stop trying to manage your sin problem. See, because what I just described is a whole management sequence. We know we have an issue. We know it's bad, but we don't want to know how bad, but I'm going to tell you what. God, I'm going to work on it. Anybody ever made a promise to God you're going to work on your sin? Sin wins every time. You can't negotiate. You can't manage sin. But we think we can. Because we think, okay, you know, I'm going to get on. This time is going to be different. Anybody ever said that about sin? And then you find yourself back in the same behavior again. Why is that? Because you can't win. The only antidote to sin is Jesus' death and his resurrection, not your self-righteousness. I am in the middle of a three and a half month root canal right now. I've had two root canals on one tooth in the last three months. Thinking, man, you got a bad dentist. No, he's good. So let me tell you what happened. Six months ago, I started feeling a little bit of pain in my tooth when I bit, but I've had a root canal before, and I knew the signs, but I thought, it's not that bad. Right? Anybody like that? I could chew on the other side, right? That works. And then, you know, you're, you're chewing, and you forget, and you start chewing on the side. Oh, yeah, that hurts, but it's not that bad. I can, I can last. I know what pain is, you know? And, and then you go to the dentist for a regular checkup, and the hygienist cleans your teeth, and then she asks that question. Are you feeling any discomfort in your mouth? I hate that question. Because in my mind, I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm fine. And I'm like, ah. I said, yeah, I got just a really slight little twinge of pain every once in a while when I bite on this side. And she's like, okay, the dentist needs to look at this. I'm like, ah. He comes in. Five minutes later, he goes, yeah, you know, look, looking real close. You got a little hairline fracture there on that tooth, and we're going to need a crown on that so it doesn't go any deeper. I'm like, all right. So then I go in two weeks later. I get the crown on. And then he, as he's, he does that, another month goes by to kind of, you know, let things settle. And I said, ah, it's still hurting. He goes, oh, let's take a look at it. He goes, oh, cracks a little deeper. Got to do a root canal. Oh, anybody had a root canal? Not fun. 
My, my dentist is a whiz with Novocaine, but still not fun. So then I go through that. Another three weeks go by. My tooth's still hurting. I go back again. And I say, that's still hurting. He goes, up. Oh got to open it up. Probably didn't miss something in the roots, and we got to get it again. So root cal number, two weeks ago, I had this again. Really fun. You know, oh, I'm making my dentist rich, right? And so now I'm at the place, if it still keeps hurting, he said, yeah, you're going to have to lose the tooth, and you're going to have to get an implant. I'm like, I don't want to go down that road. All this started with six months ago with a little twinge of pain that I thought to myself, I can manage this. I can chew on the other side. I can compensate for my pain. If I would have called the dentist that day and said, hey, I got a pain in my tooth, he would have brought me in probably within a week, would have scheduled a crown, and I probably wouldn't even have had a root canal. So this is not a lesson on dentistry, okay? <laughs> this is on the fact that if you try to, the, the, the first sign of sin in your life, if you try to go to the management mode, you're going to lose every time. You're going to lose more than you would have lost if you would have dealt with it the first time. And that means that when you and I experience brokenness and sin and failure in our life, the first option is not to manage it. The first option is to confess it, repent of it, and turn to Jesus. That's the only answer we have. Then God can start to do his work in our life. And then finally, the final cure for self-righteousness is honesty. Because then the the tax collector says what none of us want to say but all of us know is true. He says, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. That's my, that's my label. That's my identifier. I am not a righteous person. I'm not even a self-righteous person. I'm just a flat-out sinner. And we don't like to use that label to describe us, but the fact is that we are sinner by our actions, and we are sinners by the fact that we're born with a nature that when we come into this world that is broken, that attaches itself to us. So who we are and what we do is defined by sin apart from Jesus. And the only way we find freedom from that is when we admit it. We have to admit it. See, a sinner cannot be free from sin until they admit they're a sinner. An addict can't be free from their addiction until they admit they're an addict. You can't do it. You're living in denial. And so almost, it's, it's not that it's a good thing that we're sinners, but it's refreshing to actually be honest enough to say, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. Things don't work right in my life. I make bad decisions. I hurt people. I do things I shouldn't do. That's who I am, but I don't want to be that way anymore. And there's an answer to that. And that is Jesus. So this is, the reason this is so important is look at the last verse in this passage, verse 14. Jesus says this, I tell you, this man, he's talking about the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Who was justified? Who was right with God? The guy who was broken? The guy who was sorrowful, the guy who was admitting he's a sinner, who wasn't right with God, the guy who was prideful, who prayed loudly, who looked to to get the pat on the back, who on the outside looked really super righteous and spiritual. He was the one that missed it, and the one that was broken and honest was the one that got it. Now, this is what's so significant about this, because some of you are thinking, man, I got to be moping around in my sin and brokenness and get up every day and admit that I'm a sinner and just feel just like a loser every day. And then God will do something in my life. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not even what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is this. Jesus wants the sinner. Jesus wants the broken. Jesus wants the flawed. Jesus wants those who have done horrific things in their life. Jesus wants us as broken people to be part of his family. That's the message of the tax collector is the one who was broken and the one whose sin was evident and the one who was honest is the one that God reached out to and said, you're justified. And some of us need to hear that this morning. 
Because in your own mind, you have disqualified yourself before God ever said you're disqualified. Because your qualifications are based on self-righteousness, and God's qualifications are based on the righteousness of Jesus. Two different categories, two different realities. And for some this morning, you need to understand Jesus actually wants you. Do you hear me? You're like, oh, no, no, that's for somebody else. That's not for me. Or on the outside, you're like, amen. And inside, you're like, no, 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 no. You don't know what I did last night. You don't know the life that I've lived. You don't know what I've done to other people. And Jesus does because guess what? There are no closets. There are no hiding places with Jesus. Jesus knows it all. And yet he still says, I choose you to be a part of my family through my death and my resurrection in exchange for your sin. I will give you my righteousness so that you will be right with God. Now to underscore this, I want to, we're going to do in a moment, we're going to go towards communion, but before we do that, um, I'm going to play, a, a, it's, a, it's just going to be an image up on the screen, but it's, a, it's an audio clip of a pastor whose name is uh, Matt Chandler. He's in, uh, in Texas, and he's sharing a personal story that, that he experienced in his life that really grabbed his understanding of the way God works and what Jesus desires for our life. And so what I'd like you to do is I'm going to ask you, you could just, when it starts, just close your eyes. And just, uh, just listen. Listen to what he's explaining. And this will kind of help us move towards communion. Because for some of you, uh, although you're not the person he's going to reference in the story, you might as well be. Because what he's about to say is something that you definitely need to hear this morning. So let's go ahead and let's listen to this, this short clip. But just let it sink in. Go ahead and close your eyes and let the Holy Spirit speak to you through these words. Didn't take long um, before my passion for the gospel and, and my passion to see lost men and women saved um, s- started to rub against or collide with the church. And, and so it wasn't very long, and, and I, I won't, I, I can give you dozens and dozens of stories, but, but really one that kind of broke the camel's back where I decided if I was going to do this, I wasn't going to do it as a churchman because the church, more often than not, was an enemy of conversion and not its friend. I'll give you an example. Um, this turn in me, this break in me happened that God has been just disciplining me on ever since. Uh, occurred my freshman year of college when... Um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know, and so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And, and so we've talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, they, th- this is the relationship we had, just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area. And, and so I asked her to come. He was a musician. Um, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band. He's playing. Um, why, why don't you come? Why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed. She thought it would be a concert. I knew better. It was shady. It was excellent. And um, she came with me, and, and we listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy. And then the, the minister got up, and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh, uh-oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose, and he smelled it, and he showed how pretty it was, and then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. 
smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. Do it. Do it. And I'm going to teach. And, and then he began what honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart. I don't, I'm still wrestling. Um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was... Um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip. And you, right? And so I'm just thinking with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And, you know, some kid came up. The rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken. The things are off. The petals are broken. And, and he lifts it up in his big crescendo. I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him, anger. And it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith. So just would you, if your eyes aren't closed, would you just close your eyes? And we're going to prepare to, to make our way to the tables in a moment to receive communion which is a reminder to us of what Jesus said to do. He said, do this to remember me. Take the bread and the cup, symbols that point to his body being broken, his blood being shed, which means he died on the cross for our sin. But let this settle in. Jesus wants the rose, and you are the rose. I need you to hear this. That's everybody in this room. Because if none of us are righteous in and of ourselves, then all of us are the broken rose that has been tattered and broken and trampled on by our decisions and by what others have done in our life and the sin that's present in our life. And Jesus looks at the rose and says, I'll take it. It's the one that I want. It's the one that I will give everything for. It's the one that I will die for. It's the one that I want to embrace and to mend and to heal and to forgive and to set free. Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants you. So listen, here's the way it works. And this is complete insanity from our point of view. The verse that Matt Chandler quoted at the end says this, that talking of Jesus, who knew no sin, which means Jesus was perfect. Jesus didn't have to pay for anything. Jesus was righteous, righteous from the moment he was born to the moment he's died, and for all of eternity, he is perfect. And yet he, though he had no sin, became sin for us which means all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of the things that have ever happened to us, he took on himself on the cross. And this is what the Bible says. So that we, the unrighteous ones, the sinners, might become the righteousness of God. Jesus 
says to you today, if you will bring your broken rose, if you will bring your sin and your failure and even your self-righteousness and you will confess it and you will bring it forward and leave it with me in exchange, I will give you as a gift righteousness. And then you will be right with God You will learn to be right with people and you will be right with yourself because it isn't dependent on you, it's dependent on Him. So in these next few moments as we go to the tables, a couple in the back and some in the front, to receive those elements, this is what I'm going to encourage you to do. A couple of things. When you get to the table, you're going to notice not only is the bread and the cup there available to you, but there are rose petals at each of the tables. This is not a requirement, but this is if you feel this is something you need. Some of you today not only need to take those elements, you need to take a rose petal as well. And that rose petal for you is the reminder that God's voice says to you every day, I want the rose. I want you. Some of us need a physical reminder of God's love for us. And then when we understand that, then every day what comes to the surface is our sin and our brokenness, and we confess it, and we get it out to Him, and let Him bring in His righteousness as our sin goes to His account. And then the result is, then we can now do what what Jesus said to the woman who was caught in adultery. The last words He said to her after He said, neither do I condemn you, then He says, now go leave your life of sin. The only way you can leave your life of sin is if you've been forgiven of it. And today, Jesus can do that. So Jesus, in these next few moments, would, there, would you allow there this exchange as we confess with these elements, we are reminded of your death and resurrection. With these elements, we confess our sin to you, our brokenness, what we've done today and last night and last week and last year and every moment of our life we bring to you. And in that, we lay it at your feet. And then, Lord, with great joy, we receive your righteousness through your death on the cross for us so that we are no longer are self-righteous, but we are the righteousness of God because of what you've done for us. Would you do that in our lives today, Jesus, in your name?